The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. People claim to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, very different present life. Psychotic drones, where the mystic swims, they're drowning. Hello and welcome to the Astro Flight Simulation Podcast, the AFS pod, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. And today I'm joined by not only my first guest ever, but also one of the uh, few men who actually inspired me to do this and have this podcast. So it's quite an honor to bring to you Raw Egg Nationalist. Raw Egg Nationalist, please uh, introduce yourself. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Astro. You're too kind. This is a, this is a great privilege and a pleasure. Yes. Now, uh, are we okay if I call you Ren for short? Because Raw Egg... <laughs> of course. Call, call me whatever you want, darling. Ah, it sounds wonderful. It sounds sounds absolutely loving. Uh, lovely. Now, uh, I would say Raw Egg Nationalist is uh, absolutely a Renaissance man. He is has his uh, finger on the pulse of quite a number of subcultures. In fact, he's not even, he doesn't even have his finger on the pulse, I should say. He is the heartbeat of uh, quite a few uh, online movements that uh, I'd like to call underground because they haven't quite gotten the mainstream, although you did just go on Alex Jones's show, didn't you? Yeah, I've been, I've been on InfoWars twice now. Oh, even better. So you're starting to get a little bit of attention, and as far as I understand it, uh, the main thing is derived from your name itself, uh, your your advocacy of raw egg nationalism. Now, I actually, uh, I'm having you on for something else that you're you're doing. You you are the sole proprietor of Man's World magazine that comes out uh, exclusively online, and I'd like to get into that. But there's no way I can have somebody on named the raw egg nationalist and not talk about raw egg nationalism. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself, actually? With that first, and then we'll uh, get to the literary side of what you do. Yeah, of course, of course. So, well, what is raw egg nationalism? Well, raw egg nationalism is, well, it's in the name. It's about raw eggs and nationalism. Uh, I like to think that raw egg nationalism is opposed to something I call soy globalism, which uh, should be fairly sort of self-explanatory, really. This is the current, uh, the current global homo dispensation, globalism, soy culture, wokery, that sort of stuff. Whereas Roig nationalism is about uh, returning to a to a sort of a, a life of vitality through the consumption of raw eggs, among other things. But but raw eggs are sort of a central a central thing for a number of different reasons, which I can elaborate on. Uh, and this is tied to uh, to a sort of a politics of nationalism. We have strong individuals, healthy individuals who make up a healthy nation uh, that can then resist the depredations of soy globalism and our uh, soy overlords. Well, we could uh, get off into the weeds in that. Um, nationalism has become a bad word lately, though, hasn't it? 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a bad bad word for a long time. Bad word certainly since uh, certainly since the uh, certainly since the Second World mm. War. I find it uh, quite a bit uh, ridiculous, to be completely honest with you. Why do you think that is? Without without getting into the whole history of it, but uh, if you come out and say you're a nationalist today, you're going to get totally piled on. And here in America, uh, you use that word, and then you are immediately a, a Trumpist. Oh sure, no, uh, likewise in 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 Europe, if you if you say you're a nationalist, then you're a well, it's it's synonymous. It's it's synonymous with any kind of bad word you could think of racist homophobe sexist uh it's retrograde it's it's retrograde in in every sense and it and it's and it's part of a whole series of series of um sort of retrograde positions kind of inevitably uh accrue to anybody who who says that they are a nationalist um well go ahead no 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 go on well, I was going to say we're going to have to leave part of this discussion aside, but I, I can't move on to the next thing without bringing two things out that you said. First of all, you equated or aligned nationalism with vitalism. And then you also said, quote, soy culture. And of mm-hmm. course, I know what soy culture is, but uh, I wonder if uh, the public more broadly would know exactly what you meant by that. So perhaps you can explain to me uh, what soy culture is explain to us what soy culture is. Uh, why that's a bad thing, why uh, consuming raw eggs is antithetical to that, and why uh, vitality, strength, and health is a nationalist uh, conception, because some could argue that uh, the, the things do not go hand in hand. I, I personally tend to doubt that, but I think if you're going to make some of these claims, you have to, uh, mm. you have to sort of um, elucidate them. Sure, sure. Uh, well, let me think. So, what was the first thing you do? What is soy culture? Well, to be honest with you, soy culture is mainstream culture. Let's just—I'll put it like that. Um, uh, what we're talking about is <sighs> championing of uh, weakness, of uh, this sort of um, uh, lionization of minorities and the minority experience. Um, uh, a kind of mindless, mindless corporate morality, you know, where people receive their their uh, receive their moral ideas with the products that they buy. I mean, it's a it's a woke woke capital is is another phrase that's been that's been used that was bandied around. There was a very good Twitter account called Woke Capital that inevitably got banned that highlighted a lot highlighted basically the intersection between uh corporations between you know, corporations selling their products and this new sort of hyper hyper politically correct um uh sort of political and social movement um so i i mean i i, I associate soy culture obviously with soy with the consumption of soy with vegetarianism and veganism with um uh it's obviously a leftist leftist position um but uh, what was the other thing that you were talking about? What is what is soy culture? And then you were saying, why, why is that? Uh, well, well, why is um, you equated nationalism and vitalism with mm. each other? And we talked about how nationalism is a bad word now. Yes. And I just wanted to ask, why do you think those two things are uh, negatively related? I don't mean inversely related, but they have a, a correlation 
where the mainstream seems to find them both uh, to be negative things. I should add, um, Raw Nationalist has quite a large Twitter account and Twitter following, and uh, some of the stuff I'm asking him about comes directly from what, what he posts on Twitter. So, for example, you you have posted things about how um, the more you lift, the more right wing you become. Now, these these are these are statements made by mainstream journalists and mainstream mm. journals. Things about uh, uh, a fat acceptance, accepting obesity not yes. as a health problem, but obesity as a uh, as not even a, a lifestyle it's a, choice. It's just, a moral. It's a moral. Sort of, it's a moral position. That's that's what it's become. Obesity is a moral position, um, which is which is which is bizarre, which is bizarre. But it is a moral position because it is because it's become a a person because obese people, fats as I like to call them, are um, now a, a persecuted minority rather than just being unhealthy people. They're a persecuted minority. Well, they act, they are spoken of and act as if, but they're actually the majority, aren't they? Yes. 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 But, <laughs> but 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 of course, when in this in this sort of current um, dispensation, then the, the 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 minority experience is the sort of experience par excellence. That's the that's like the highest level of morality that you can aspire to is to be is to be a minority and to speak as a member of a minority. So uh, you get you get all of the all of the language that that, that was used. And that is that is used by people of color or persons of color, whatever they like to call themselves, um, you know, to just indigenous um, uh, uh, transsexuals and all that kind of stuff is now is now being appropriated by fat people as well to describe their experience and to uh, give themselves a sort of um, uh, a kind of higher moral moral standing, I suppose. Absolutely. And that's that's precisely what I was getting at when I was trying to uh, get you to explore that further. Now, um, I'm going to stick with this topic for just a moment, uh, mm. because today, after going to the gym, I did slunk six raw eggs mixed with a little whole milk well and done. maple syrup mixed up in the blender. Of course, the, the eggs are from a neighbor who raises Good. chickens and Fantastic. the milk was locally uh, as well, local as well. Well done. Uh, and I started doing this, you know, I've spent, I'm not a, myself a bodybuilder uh, by any stretch of the imagination, never have been. However, I've always been active, I've always been fit, and I've always mm. worked out at the gym and outside as well. However, the raw egg thing, uh, I never was able to get into. I, I, to be honest with you, I've never thought about it much until uh, me and you crossed paths. Sure. But I realized that uh, because I've always been health conscious and I've always tried to eat whole foods and for a while there, when I started uh, lifting weights, I was mostly a, mostly a cardio guy most of my life. Uh, when I started lifting weights, I started uh, drinking shakes. And that didn't last very long because the ingredients in the shake mix, the protein powder, are, are, are always garbage. Every yeah, time horrible. you find one, yeah, you, you either the main ingredient is garbage. Um, yeah, just awful, <laughs> awful stuff. Yeah, and I, I've come to, to discover that supplementing uh, my shakes with raw eggs, they've, they've actually, I don't even supplement them anymore. They've completely replaced this uh, soy culture uh, because a lot of a lot of the shake mixes use soy as a filler. Mm. Yes. Uh, so, and I've heard you say uh, before that consuming the cholesterol is uh, anabolic. 
yes yes that's i mean that's is that the, the case this is the this is the primary this is something that people get wrong is people think that uh people think that consuming raw eggs is just about protein and then they point to the one or two studies that show that um actually you absorb less protein from a raw egg than a cooked um the the, the thing is the cholesterol and and it's also and it's also about being able to consume eggs in extremely large quantities. I mean, if, if you try and eat 18 boiled eggs, you're going to have a hard time. Uh, you know, watch Cool Hand Luke if you don't believe me. Uh, whereas you can knock back 18 raw eggs just like that. It's, it's so easy. It's so easy. And, it's, and if you have them in the Gironda style shake with milk, cream, uh, and um, say maple syrup or honey. Sorry, let me turn that off. Uh, then um, uh, it's it's delicious. It's it's a milkshake. It's an anabolic milkshake. But um, but yeah, to get back to cholesterol, cholesterol. Um, there have been studies recently, including a study or series of studies by a chap called Steve Reichman, who I talk about in my books, um, that show that there is a closer correlation between cholesterol consumption and lean muscle growth than between protein consumption and lean muscle growth. Uh, they don't quite know why that is. They don't know whether it's it's because cholesterol is just a testosterone precursor. I mean, if you look at the two molecules, they're very, very similar, testosterone and, and cholesterol, and cholesterol is involved in the in the um, uh, production of testosterone. But um, there are other theories that, 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 I, that I won't get into that are, that are kind of abstract about movement of lipids across cell membranes and stuff. But um, it's uh, yeah. Th so there is there is there is very good evidence that cholesterol intake is high cholesterol intake is very anabolic. Well, this is all very interesting. Now, this immediately brings us to the other two subjects that I want to discuss with you. And they're all interrelated, of course, even though sure. they might not seem to be, because uh, you yourself are a bodybuilder. You have the neck of an ox. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've, <laughs> I've seen you neck docs on Twitter before. Uh, so we can confirm that the raw eggs do work. And I have nothing to add to what you said, except well, the it's thing, absolutely the thing, correct. The thing, about the, the thing about the raw eggs working as well is that this isn't, uh, I mean, this isn't something I've made up or anyone else has made up. Uh, this was bodybuilding orthodox, or I say orthodoxy. This was something that lots of bodybuilders did in the 50s and 60s as a result of the teachings uh, and the, the, the philosophy of, of Vince Gironda, who was a bodybuilding pioneer in Hollywood, uh, trained all sorts of um, incredibly famous film stars, people like Clint Eastwood, uh, Carl Weathers from Rocky, um, Cher, people like that. And he also trained Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, the first Mr. Olympia, Larry Scott, Don Howarth, Mr. America, Lou Ferrigno, uh, Frank Zane at one point, I think, as well. So it, it's I mean, this is it's like it's a return. It's a return to uh, it's a return to bodybuilding tradition, if you will, the consumption of raw eggs, because bodybuilders went off. Went off eggs. Um, but especially egg yolks because because of the cholesterol as a result of the mainstream uh, scientific, supposedly scientific viewpoint that uh, cholesterol consumption is bad for you. 
Well, this is uh, intended to be a primarily a literary show, so why don't we loop sure. back to this topic, because I do have more to ask you about this, mm. uh, but it, it is tied up. Uh, it's inextricable from your literary project. Uh, I want to ask you a bit about Geronda and why why mm. you chose to go with his physique uh, to present your 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 persona and your body yep. of work, and not the physique of someone who's come you know later than him or someone who's contemporary. Mm. But let's loop back to that uh, via your books that you published and Man's World Journal. Sure. So you were on uh, Man's World number five now, correct? Yes, yeah, number five, and an annual. And as, right, which is available in print. Which is available in print, yes, from Antelope Hill. Yes, I will be procuring a copy of uh, that ASAP. I meant to have it for today's show. However, I've yep. read all the issues. Well, you should do, you should do, because uh, you're in it. Well, not to toot my own horn, but I'm quite I'm quite honored by that. Uh, I do hope maybe later on in the show we can really get into some of the philosophical concepts that we discuss both in my piece and mm. and other people's writings from the magazine but before we get there uh i i personally am interested in the nuts nuts and bolts in this type of thing because we live in a new world uh, we live in a new world of letters a new world of literature and a new world of periodicals the old world is is dead i don't think we're going to get that much argument argumentation from that yeah, if anyone did want to give no and if anyone wanted to give pushback they would point to the continued existence of periodicals that have been around, some of them for close to more than 100 years, actually. The problem is, I say it's dead because if you look in the content, it's the same thing month to month, and it's also the same thing from periodical to periodical. Everything has kind of been leveled onto what's acceptable to say. And I'm not even just talking about wokeism. Um, mm. it, it's it's sort of a combination of, uh, of a, a dull mainstream that's sort of at the behest of the advertisers and the money so you know they're not going to say anything that's going to lose them advertisers and and magazines are basically a a delivery device for the ads yeah so they don't want the content to push back but that hasn't always been the case of course if you if you go put even old playboy magazines from the 50s or 60s whenever they first came out mm. uh top-notch quality harper's magazine um, even Life magazine and, and things that we kind of consider to be just, you know, laughably ridiculous yes. now uh, had had some big name writers in them and they had some some high quality content. And it doesn't really exist anywhere. I mean, the New Republic is is Mark Zuckerberg's rag, although they've they've been compromised for a long time. And I could go right down the list. So when you started to put this uh, conceptualize this periodical and you started to put it out, did you have all of this in mind? Uh, was it just you and your bros trying to put something together to put your, your names and your work together? Or did you have a mission that you're trying to sort of revive uh, an older time of um, intellectual discourse as well as uh, encourage men's, to use your word, vitality, uh, sure. sort of propagate a, a manly culture to mm -hmm. to not just combat what you refer to as soy culture, but to just offer an alternative for men who are turned off by that and don't have anywhere to turn. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. Let me let me say. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, it's just me doing the magazine. It's just me, and it always has just been me. I've never had any, apart from uh, the help I have from the people who write the articles. You know, it, it's it's just me. Um, so uh, it has always been 
just down to me in the in the beginning though i don't i don't know if i had a i don't know if i had a vision in the beginning so i was writing my second book which is three lives of golden age bodybuilders which is about three golden age bodybuilders it's a series of biographies basically and it's meant to be almost like a like a series of roman biographies from classical rome which were used as moral exemplars and i wanted to show how how different the lives of golden age bodybuilders were how they not only had you know wonderful physiques how they not only looked beautiful but also actually led sort of fulfilling lives which are very very different from the life of a modern builder who a uh, modern builder modern bodybuilder who um you know just goes to the gym uh chugs protein shakes eats tuna and chicken and rice and and then collapses on the on the sofa um and then rinses and repeats that the next day um uh, but yes, I was I was writing this book and uh, I one of the bodybuilders in the book, Reg Park, uh, who was Arnold Schwarzenegger's mentor. Uh, I, I found out that he had had a journal in the 1950s called the Reg Park Journal, which then became Man's World Journal. And I thought that's a pretty cool name for a journal, Man's World. So I, I got a copy of it and I read it and it was sort of charming and and sort of uh, uh, quaint as you would expect of a 1950s um, men's journal. But it made me it made me start to think, well, actually, you know, when, when was the last time I read a men's magazine that was good? And the answer was uh, a long time ago, like when I was when I was 12 or 13 and probably shouldn't have been reading Playboy. Uh, and then I thought, well, when was the last time I read a magazine full stop for any kind of content? I mean, I know everything's online now, but that's not the point. Magazines still exist. It's a nice it's a nice thing to sit down. It's a nice experience to sit down with a magazine. It's, it's totally it's totally um, sort of superior to um, reading a magazine online. Uh, so I, I just I, I kind of I, I that that idea of of. Well, that thought about the the sort of death of men's magazines was just turning over in my head and then i i mocked up a cover i mocked up a cover of uh of the of a new revived man's world and i put ziz on the front of it who is a uh, a sort of uh darling of um right-wing uh right-wing bodybuilders massively online bodybuilders uh i won't go into too much detail about him you may or may not know who he is you can look him up um uh, and I said, I did a tweet and I said, would you subscribe to Man's World Journal? Question mark. And, and there was a good response to it. So I thought, well, actually, you know what, I'll, I'll let's see if I can put together something along these lines that will uh, that will uh, sort of interest and excite people. I basically memed myself into doing it anyway. Uh, it started to build a momentum of its own. And I and I while well, I was doing the first issue and I thought, actually, this could be really good. And it was I got some I got some great contributors. I wrote some stuff myself. I, I used it as an opportunity to start serializing my book, Three Lives of Golden Age Bodybuilders. Uh, but I didn't I don't know if I thought I didn't think that there would be probably more than one issue, to be honest with you. And uh, I had no experience with design at all. So I was I was just uh, winging it and doing my best, trying to trust my trust my instincts. Uh and then anyway, it came out and it was people loved it. It had 
I mean, it's had it's had in its various iterations. The first issue has had over 100,000 views, which is pretty amazing uh, for a for a magazine that came came out of thin air. Uh, and you know, I was a very small Twitter account or a pretty small Twitter account when I did it. So it's not I didn't have a huge I didn't have a huge uh, pre-existing following or anything like that, although I did I did benefit from the uh, as a lot of us have from the uh, kindness of people like Bronze Age Pervert who uh, who promoted it. So the the first issue was kind of a just a, a sort of delightful, delightful accident. Uh, but since then, it, I, I, it has. I have kind of. Um, I have developed a vision, I've developed what I want man's world to be uh, into something a bit more coherent than just uh, just sort of, um, you know, just kind of uh, having a go at it. I mean, I, 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 I do think that I do think that it is a that it is a very good vehicle for. People on our side of the Internet and people with talent who wouldn't otherwise have an outlet, who wouldn't be able to find a way to wouldn't be able to find a forum in which to publish their thoughts, their work, their fiction, uh, other than say starting a Substack or a blog or something. I wanted to give them, I wanted to bring together all of these different people and give them, uh, give them a, an attractive, coherent space in which to, um, in which to express themselves, to advertise their talents and to uh, to, de- to develop themselves i suppose i mean it's it's been a it's been a real learning experience for me i've learned a huge amount about made some mis- some <laughs> kind of glaring design errors for instance but um if you compare the fifth issue this the present issue that's just come out a few days ago to issue 1 i mean there's night and day it's it's it does look like a professional magazine now it really does and it's and it's taken on a kind of grandeur of its own, and I'm really happy that and and incredibly grateful that that's happened. Yes, it's absolutely uh, professional, and I would put it up against. In fact, I would put it over and above anything out right now. Um, and the fact that it, it took off like it did, especially uh, by its own merit, and not necessarily because of any one person's even if we're talking about BAP uh, and not because of any one person's promotion uh, kind of started to spread like wildfire I would say mm. so it shows you that there was there was uh, people looking for this kind of thing out there now uh, literature has kind of undergone a bit of a dark age for a little while and I would say that the dark age probably perpetuates itself in the mainstream culture to this day however there's this movement of self-publishing. Uh, there's people like Zero HP Lovecraft who just published something actually that wasn't self-published, but up until that he had only been on a blog. Uh, a few guys who advertise in your magazine, Mike Ma in particular, as far yeah. as I know, is solely solely self-published. Uh, Bronze Age Pervert as well. Uh, he he likes to say that his self-published book does better than a lot of mainstream pundits who appear on cable news and in the mainstream press uh, don't sell as well as his book does. And it's not just gloating. Uh, It's actually a very significant point that he brings out for a very significant reason, because this is where uh, culture is really happening and really being made. And um, the Internet allows us 
to sort of have a little bit of breathing room when we might otherwise be stifled and we might otherwise be presenting ourselves like paupers to the big uh, publishing industry uh, and the big publishers who, you know, unfortunately, the, the currents and the tides of um, the things that get published are not down solely to merit uh, on who's the best writer and who has the best new ideas. Sure. It bec- mm. becomes this identity politics thing. Whereas you're you're uh, explicitly gatekeeping uh, your your work in a certain way, just simply by calling it man's world. You yes. actually did have a young lady publish uh, Noor bin Laden this year, this this issue. Yep, and uh, and Evelyn Ray from Australia as well. She's written a very nice, uh, very nice opinion piece in the opinion section. Okay, so the the gatekeeping isn't quite so strict, but yet the but the um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It, it, it's the subversive aspect of it is still uh, is still retained by having yes. Noor bin Laden. Uh, perhaps maybe I wanted to discuss some content a little bit. Maybe we can start with her piece. Uh, who exactly is she and how exactly did you get her to uh, participate in this? Well, I've uh, I had um, I did an interview with Noor in issue four in the previous issue. Uh, I met Noor through. I met who did I meet Noor through through Dan Lyman of Infowars, who I'm friends with uh, on Twitter, and he introduced me to her. And we just started talking and she liked my stuff and I liked her stuff. So we, we decided to do a decided to do a decided to do an interview together. And I've been on her podcast. And I think I'm going back on it again reasonably soon. Um, we just I, th- I think we're we're coming from the same place. She's a she's a very, very interesting person. Very, very interesting story. I mean, I don't I don't know if I'm qualified to, to, to sort of tell her story, but she she. You know, you think of this family name with a certain reputation, and then she is, she is a, um, she's a Trump-supporting, uh, you know, uh, courageous fighter for freedom. Uh, she's a, she's a very, 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 very interesting, very, very interesting person. And um, uh, I thought, you know, that's the, that's the kind of, that's the kind of woman I want in Man's World. Uh, and Evelyn Ray is Evelyn Ray is another example of of the kind of uh, kind of really powerful woman that I that I'm more than happy to to host in Man's World. I don't uh, I don't just want the, con- the contributors to be to be men. I mean I I think that the, the, the calling it Man's World it's it's about the it's the vibe more than anything uh, the values. That we uh, that I that I want to uh, that I want to uh, promote, but it's not it's not just uh, you know it's not just a boys' club, although it is. I mean, this is overwhelmingly male contributors, and I'm sure it will and it will obviously probably remain that way. But um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah that was uh, I mean that was a real coup for me to get her as well. I mean she's a uh, she's a uh, she's been on Fox and. Uh, She's interviewed all sorts of people. She's just interviewed General Flynn, uh, and she's interviewed people like Darren Beatty um, and all sorts of other people. Richard Poe, who is the um, uh, subject of the interview feature that she did for issue five, he's a he's a very very interesting, very very um, intelligent, um, 
investigative journalist and researcher who's been writing about people like George Soros and also uh, issues like false flags and uh, predictive policing and all that kind of stuff for 40 years. And uh, the establishment has done its very best to squash him. Uh, and he's I think he's a bit of a mentor or like a mentor to Nora. And she was uh, very well placed to, to do an interview with him. Oh, perfect. That, and that's exactly what I meant by subversive. Um, I don't even know if anyone else but Man's World would publish this interview. Uh, and of course, I need to clarify when I said gatekeeping. I didn't I didn't mean gatekeeping women out. I no, meant I, gatekeeping. I know, I know you did. Uh, what I want to clarify for the audience sure. as well, I meant gatekeeping grifters out. Sure. Uh, the, the, there's been there's been quite a bit bit of a blow up lately in the last uh, couple of weeks with these grifters, I'm not even going to name them, nor am I going to speak anything about the controversy that has come out. But uh, the grifters are, are cancer, and they're cancerous to us. And it should be uh, extremely easy. You should be able to spot a grifter immediately, because they are always going to have some of the same characteristics. And someone who's not a grifter, someone who's pure, who's doing it uh, from the heart, uh, should be equally as easy to spot. Uh, and one of the the ways to to spot someone who's uh, who's uh, authentic is the the uh, anonymity. So, Raw Egg, why are you doing your projects uh, anonymously? And um, to sort of elaborate a little bit on that question, because it's not it's not just a it's, you're not doing it just to have a laugh, but there is a little bit of a ridiculous element to the anonymity. Um, and I and I'm not simply talking about the fact that you might be able to make some uh, some off color jokes anonymously that you wouldn't be able to make mm. uh, with using your real name and your real face. But even the name Raw Egg Nationalist and there's some other names, Bronze Age Pervert. Um, yeah. They're they're not. I don't want to say tongue in cheek, but if they make you laugh, uh, I, I think if you get to know the persona behind these these names yourself, obviously being being one of these people, um, it it certainly comes across that this is intended. That you're 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 aware that if I were to be referring to you as raw or raw egg, it's a bit funny. However, your content is 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 very serious. It's on the highest level of professionalism that that you could possibly imagine. And the simple the fact that you do this magazine completely by yourself, as the title page uh, or excuse me the um, the editorial page uh, shows, you 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 are the art director, you are the advertiser, you you produce some of the content, you do the cover, etc. 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 Um, I, and I know you don't just do this to, to simply hide your identity. I believe it's, it must give you some sort of, um, a different angle than if you did your, your, your real name and your real face. Now, my, my, what I'm trying to say here is that, uh, if you were, we're, do, we're going down the list to make a checklist of how to spot a grifter, uh, if they're using their real face and, and real name, that checks, checks the grifter box. And if they're anonymous, uh, you can leave that box unchecked. So um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, you don't sure. you don't have to give me your reasons for being anonymous um, in the sense that, you know, the, the, the simple sense that that everyone kind of understands, like, oh, if you say something off color, maybe someone will make a phone call to your human resources department. Yeah. I'm more interested in the artistic angle to it sure. and the, the sort of irreverent, uh, humorous sort of court jester angle to it. Yeah, well, that's uh, why well, I, th I think I think that is that is a large part of it is this. I mean, humorlessness 
this sort of uh, is is one of the is one of the essential components, I think, of this modern um, progressive religion that has taken hold of of um, the taken soy hold culture. Of, of, yeah, so yeah, exactly. You call it soy culture, woke, woke culture, woke capital, whatever you want to call it, globo homo. It's it's essentially humorless. Uh, and what I think is what I think is very powerful about anonymity is is your your you're altering the terrain on which these people, these humorless people, and and these, and I, I have a certain amount of of uh, of them now engaging with me, have to engage with you. You know, you, you're not. They own the official terrain, and they think that, uh, or they think that they own the terrain, um, and they expect you to, they expect you to reveal yourself and. Uh, engage with them you know in the marketplace of ideas or whatever as an equal and you know be shamed and cancelled and whatever um but actually this anonymity allows you to allows you to um well uh, not to not to not to to fight entirely on your own terms but to fight on terms that aren't entirely theirs either there's always the danger with any of these social media platforms that you're just going to get, you're just going to disappear overnight. I mean, every, every day when I wake up and, and, uh, you know, log on, eventually log on to Twitter and see that I'm still there is a, is a good day, but, and it's a, something that I'm grateful for, but, um, you know, there could come the day when any of us is just obliterated at the, at the, at the click of a mouse or a press of a keyboard button. Um, so I think that it's I think that it's um it's like a I mean it is a form of almost asymmetric warfare I suppose um and it infuriates them that's what's funny that is what's funny I mean it's so funny to see a character called Bronze Age pervert with this really funny avatar you know his presumably his back and nothing else and uh you know, all of these mainstream people, mainstream classics people, fetching and 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 bitching about him, and and uh, you know, doing their utmost to to, um, to vilify and 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 um, sort of uh, have him cast out of the out of the um, out of uh, online life. Um, well, yeah, out of out of the discourse, they want to get yes, everyone out of the discourse yes, who doesn't do. fall in line, and they and they just make themselves look so they just make themselves look so so pathetic and and so impotent and and silly and uh, uncomprehending. If I may uh, interrupt you, I, I, mm. I don't mean to do so, but I you, you bring no, up something I, I need I need to point out. Um, I need to point this out. The people you're referring to, one of the reasons they want to get rid of folks such as yourself and him is because they are lying about uh the subject matter that they're supposedly the experts on yes of course uh, they are they are lying about uh the ancient world and they're lying about mm-hmm. ancient and medieval culture and uh they don't want this person who presents himself as somewhat of a um well to use his term a court jester he has said that before mm-hmm. i think he's absolutely correct um they want to turn the uh, anonymous people into clowns and the fact that we embody that 
is <laughs> I think is great and it's a it's a lot of good fun. At the same time, when you dig down to the content, uh, the content that's being put out by folks such as yourself, him, and many many others, is on a it's on an intellectual uh, level several orders of magnitude higher than that of the academics who are trying to sort of uh, contort the works of the great artists and the great writers of the pasts and even the actual history of the past that has uh, transpired that is irrefutable such as uh, mm. the bones and the remains i mean this is this is like uh, sacrilegious to to dig up a, a grave of someone and tell lies about what you found there is uh it, it you know we're here to have a good time but but these things are actually quite offensive and they're quite egregious uh offenses against against culture um so folks like bronze age pervert who clearly knows his shit uh, are a threat to them and they're they're not a threat to their careers of course but they're he's a threat to their um uh what their their um their authority authority the authority Eminent. intellectual authority so anyway, uh, we could we could easily get off on the weeds on that. Uh, you before we started recording, you told me that you'd be willing to come back. So it's quite clear that we need to do that because um, yep. we haven't yep. even gotten really in, down into the content of Men's Issue Five. I'd like to spend perhaps the rest of the show discussing the content, um, and you've given us a great segue into that by uh, talking a little bit at length about Bronze Age Pervert, who has a, an article written. In this S in excuse me in this uh, issue as well as I believe it's issue two, and they sort of play off each other. And you yourself have an article in in this one. Uh, I forget the title of your article. I remember the content. I have it pulled up here. What was the title of your article? Uh, it's the village and the war band. Absolutely. Now that article and some of the the concepts that Bab talks about in his articles are are quite intricately tied in together. I'm wondering if you feel up to maybe giving us a bit of a synopsis, at, uh, absolutely, on your article uh, and his as well. Um, I can help you out with his. I don't. I, I didn't. Uh, we didn't. Neither one of us prepared to discuss BAP's articles, but we need to bring out uh, the spirit of 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 manly freedom sure. that BAP is trying to get at in his two articles because uh, they're mm. very elusive today. Uh, uh, the type of freedom that BAP is talking about and that you are talking about in your articles are, are very elusive today. So for those folks who might tune in who haven't read this yet, uh, first order of business is to encourage them to go do so. Second order of business, uh, please give us as good of a synopsis as you can off the top of your head. And I have the issue right in front of me here, so I'll be able to supplement uh, as we Thank go you. along. So in issue five of Man's World, I have an article called, uh, it's an extended essay called The Village and the War Band. And basically, it's, I'm contrasting two different models of traditional life drawn from European history. Uh, and I have, a, I have a very particular target in mind, which is people who talk about a return to a tradition. You, you may, you may, I'm sure you'll have seen the the memes, the return to tradition memes, the old ways are best. You know, we must return to a traditional form of life. Uh, and one of the one of the dominant sort of um, themes of a lot of these memes is a return to village life. And you have all of these sort of aesthetics or traditionalist aesthetic accounts like Wrath of Gnon, um, uh, who post 
pictures of beautiful villages in Belgium and Britain and across Europe and these articles, uh, sort of threads about um, about traditional crafts and and handiworks and stuff and architecture. Anyway, so you have these people who think that um, uh, village life is in some sense a is in some sense a model for a kind of conservative revival, if you call it that, or a traditionalist revival. And then what I'm trying to do basically is to say, first of all, that actually you should be careful for what you wish for, um, or you should be careful what you wish for, because I mean, I'm somebody who's lived in a village for a large part of my life, and I'm also somebody who uh, studied the Middle Ages. I know a lot about what village life was like in the Middle Ages, which you could kind of call the maybe the golden age of the village in Europe. Anyway, so I I say basically you should be careful what you wish for. Um, living in a village now isn't what you think it is, and living in a village then in the Middle Ages wasn't what you might uh, think it is. And I use the example of uh, the village of Montaillou in the French Pyrenees, which was the subject of a very very very, very famous and uh, excellent um, book by a French historian called Emmanuel Leroy Ladurie in the 1970s. It was one of the one of the very early sort of uh, great works of social history uh, in the social history movement. Um, and it's about the lives of ordinary peasants and shepherds in a, an alpine village. Uh, in southwestern France uh, during the time of the Inquisition as well. So uh, it was an area that was that was suspected of, or, well, was heavily involved in the Cathar heresy and the Inquisition was sent in uh, to root it out, basically. And um, what transpires when you read this this book is that actually village life was incredibly stifling. Uh, you had no privacy. Uh, everybody knew your business. Uh, it was village life actually was all of the things or a great many of the things that people complain about in the modern world today, that traditionalists complain about in the modern world today. So I'm saying, look, actually, this isn't a good model at all. Then I go on to propose an alternative model, which which draws very heavily on um, Bronze Age mindset, Bronze Age perverts um, book, but also on on uh, on uh, these recent genetic studies, which have um, which have caused a lot of waves in the fields of um, uh, well, ecology, but um, that have caused a lot of waves anyway because they've revealed the um, They've revealed the real origins, I suppose, of the European peoples in a mass migration from the steppe, from the Pontic Caspian steppe. Uh, this gets into... back to what I was saying about about mm. the liars, because this yes. was known and they've changed the story yes. and they can't do it anymore. No. Well, well, so so it was a it was suspected from at least. Well, I think I think the 19th century that. Um, uh there had been massive incursions from the steppe from by people who built barrows known as known as Kurgans, um, and they were called the Kurgan peoples, 
uh, into Europe and that that was that was perhaps the origin of the Aryan race, um, you know, of, of, of uh, fabled Nazi fable. Um, and, you know, this was this 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 theory that um, or the theory that um, the European peoples were were sort of born out of this bloody massive invasion from the steppe was became very very unpopular after world war ii because of its associations with the nazis uh, and and their sort of claims to uh descendants to be the descendants of uh of the aryan peoples uh so i mean it, it was for, for political reasons it was it was it was thrown onto the dung heap of history but um the evidence was there the evidence was still there the physical evidence was still there that had, that had led people to believe it but then from i think it was 2015 um there was a series of 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 pioneering uh pioneering um scientific papers analyzing ancient dna extracted from skeletons uh which showed that uh, which provided basically overwhelming evidence that actually these migrations really had happened um anyway what i what i use these papers to do uh sorry to to sort of drone on uh what these what i use these papers to say is that actually there's an alternative model in european history which is not settled life within villages as described in say montaillou uh there's another model and that is the life of the war band that's the life of a kind of mobile uh mobile groups of young men going out looking to make their fortune um conquering new lands creating opportunities for themselves um taking taking what's theirs or taking what they want to be theirs um uh and so yes so that's it that's it basically that is that is what the essay is about is that these two alternative two alternative models of european history and um of what or ways of life in european history and i say that um maybe now isn't the time for a revival of village life maybe now is a time for a revival of of war bands well that's an interesting that's an interesting proposition on your part Let's uh, let's explore a few of these concepts here before we get back to the modern day war bands. Uh, sure. I think probably the the iconic movie for this would be Mad Max, and then the uh, Japanese animation response to Mad Max, the Fist of the North Star. I don't know if you've seen either of those two, but they sh- they depict what a modern day war band may look like. Uh, another good example is Fury Road, the Mohawk mm-hmm. wearing uh, guy with the the football shoulder pads with spikes on them. But I think what you're getting at and what what Bronze Age Pervert is getting at in his essay, uh, not the one from this issue, actually, the one from uh, issue two called something like the Open Sea of the Step, I believe. The the Open Step of the Sea. It's a sort of the Open Step of the Sea. uh, Sort of absolute freedom that uh, doesn't really exist today in in modern Mm. society. There, there, There is a way to access a certain type of freedom that is not prescribed by liberalism. And I don't mean liberalism, liberals versus conservative, but I mean the sort of post-enlightenment uh, civilization that has developed over the last several hundred years. 
because if we read Nietzsche, particularly Twilight of the Idols, although this his whole entire project is focused on this, um, mm-hmm. he he tells us that what uh, the, the project of liberalism refers to as freedom and what uh, the tenets of freedom that were created by uh, the Enlightenment thinkers are, in fact, limitations on freedom. They are the exact opposite of what they present themselves as. And they are the antithesis of absolute freedom, which yeah. I would argue most people are terrified of. And uh, I, I would like to think the pandemic and the, the rabid endorsement, uh, in fact, not even just the endorsement of the government's uh, uh, lockdown measures and, and social distancing yeah. measures. But in fact, there are many calls by uh, citizens for the government to be more heavy handed with the pandemic yep. restrictions. I believe that there is an is uh, evidence of uh, some of us are terrified of freedom. But the other thing, the other maybe perhaps more enlightened argument against uh, what you speak of the war band culture is that that type of uh, absolute freedom actually limits the freedom of others. So if uh, you guys want to go around acting like uh, savages, it's going to inevitably uh, in, uh, uh, encroach upon the freedom of others. And you can't really have a liberal society uh, with that type of freedom available to individuals. Mm. So therefore, the state comes in and has to limit it. Uh, when I mentioned Nietzsche and the Twilight of the Idols in particular, he says that uh, liberal institutions are actually meant to, to corral the freedom of a certain type of individual. Uh, and that type of individual is the uh, virile or a vital type of man that you spoke of in the beginning who maybe slonks raw eggs, who is in fact responsible for building the liberal institutions. But of course, once the liberal institutions are established, he has no place there because he sure. uh, will upset the the natural order. Mm. I personally think now I, I do know there are some people out there who who take all of this very literally. And they want to actually become pirates and they want to actually become mercenaries. Uh, and that's fine. I actually think we should we should address that for a moment. But before we get there, I'd like to uh, to use your article as a template, because before you talk about the war band, you actually contrast uh, the villager to the shepherd. And I think the shepherd is is sort of an alternative uh, type of person who can access this absolute freedom without necessarily encroaching upon the freedom of others and whether or not you're concerned about doing that you know do what thou wilt or do what thou wilt harm none it's kind of the 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 tension here um even if you're not concerned with encroaching upon the freedom of others uh, not not everyone has has it in them to become you know the member of a war band and it's not even necessary sometimes uh uh, there are alternatives, and I think I think you pointing out the shepherd was an was an excellent move. So give us a little bit more about your article about what what you say about the shepherd, how you juxtaposed him to the villager, and the fact that the shepherds there seems to be historical precedence for them actually being kind of approached by members of the village to give up the shepherd's way of life for one way yeah. or another. Maybe it's to accept a wife and accept yeah. a dowry. Or uh, get involved with some uh, machinations of a merchant who wants to set up something with his uh, his flock, uh, and they oftentimes would reject that. So talk a little bit about the shepherd, and I'd like to uh, analogize them to some of the the shepherd-like lifestyles available to young men today, because that is ultimately what this is all about. I think uh, offering alternatives to young men to the stifling uh, 
uh, gynocracy and longhouse um, that is being uh, sort of forced upon them more and more every year, uh, more so with the pandemic than anything I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. So if you'll excuse my little rant there. No, no, um, no. Please get back. Uh, yeah. It's very enlightening. Um, so, yeah. So in uh, Montaigu, uh, as I said, was in the uh, southwestern France, Alpine village uh, in the Pyrenees or the foothills of the Pyrenees. And society was divided between peasants, as in cultivators, people who tilled, tilled the land, uh, planted, planted uh, crops, harvested them and shepherds and the shepherds um the shepherds sort of well the shepherds lived an itinerant life and for at least part of the year they would take their flocks into the high mountains of the pyrenees and they'd just be gone basically so they were they were by contrast with the settled peoples of the village who stayed there year round tended their crops these shepherds would go off up into the high high mountains and and live um, and live up there with their animals. And one of the interesting things, uh, well, f- first of all, it's worth saying that these would be young men normally. Um, you'd have to, I mean, it was a it was a rugged a rugged lifestyle, so they had you know you had to be young and 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 fit and healthy. Um, uh, but it was also it was also a life of it was a life of adventure. It was um, it was uh, it was it was a way to to escape the confines of village life and escape the ties and obligations of village life. So a lot of the, the main character or one of the main characters in Montaigu is a shepherd called Pierre Mori, and he's. Uh, he turns out to be he's a magnanimous, really warm, um, really likable young man. And he, at every turn, resists attempts by the villagers to tie him down in various ways, including by getting married. Um, another way they try to tie him down is they report him to the bishop for heresy. And uh, he manages to escape off into the mountains. And in fact, that's actually what a lot of people would do in Montaigu if the bishop came for them they would go off into the mountains um but the shepherds so the shepherd's life was was totally different from the life of the of the sedentary villagers and you can see it it's reflected not only in in the way that they lived but also the way that they thought uh you can see a more kind of philosophical outlook a more a, le- a less sort of superstitious way of thinking um was sort of prevalent among them they had what what you might describe as lofty thoughts i suppose which uh you know there's a nietzsche and uh parallel there where he talks about walking up up mountains and having lofty thoughts i can't remember the exact quote but anyway that's that that is essentially having lofty thoughts for these shepherds is is almost like a function of living up in the mountains and and living in solitude with their animals above the above the sort of petty concerns of the the villagers down below um so yes it's it's a i mean it's an interesting in the article then what i i sort of say is it's almost like a halfway house it's like a halfway house between a village life and life in a war band so like the war band these shepherds would have been itinerant uh trusting their own 
trusting their own instincts. Uh, I mean, they did sort of club together, so it would be like essentially groups of friends going off into the going off into the mountains together with their flocks, and and sort of living together and and looking out for one another. But there's not the there's not the martial aspect that you have with a war band. That's the that's what's lacking. I think it's almost like a it's a very hard life, but it's also a gentle life in 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 another respect. So I, I can see what you're trying to say about the about the um, about the fact that you're sort of living in a, a a sort of nomadic life, but you're not hurting anybody, you're not tr- treading on anybody's toes as such. Um, well, the the reason I bring that up though is because if you were to start hurting people, which I absolutely do not advocate, but uh, about... I don't even know why it would be necessary. Uh, but um, the point I'm trying to make here, I, what, what was my point, is that uh, any any a real life war band would, of course, invite the uh, the heavy hand of the state down upon you mm. rather rather immediately. Yes. Uh, the only type of example i can think of is like a fight club scenario where mm. you and a bunch of mates might get together and and bare knuckle box or even just join mm. a gym join a boxing yes. gym or something like that uh and, that, and that's a way to get uh get the the tension and the aggression out well i suppose now, i suppose uh, um what, what i would say is that it depends on whether you see the power of the state persisting or not uh i mean one of the one of the interesting things about Bronze Age mindset, I think, is that he says that that we're on the cusp of an age where the power of the state is actually going to start receding. Um, I mean, the the thing, for instance, in the in the to go back to Montaigu about the shepherds is that the mountains the mountains made them untouchable. You know, like you you can't go if you're the bishop and you want to get someone for heresy, you can't go off into the mountains looking for people. It just doesn't it just doesn't work. It's not going to happen. So as as recently seen in stark detail with the, uh, our attempts to get the Taliban out of the mountains of Afghanistan. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it, it's kind of it's intimately it's intimately tied to terrain, which is which is interesting. Uh, and there are definitely different types of terrain, I think, that are more and less suited for freedom. And I think probably the terrain that is least suited for freedom would be an enormous an enormous alluvial plain like in central china um you know which has been the sort of um which has been a kind of zone of zone of uh mass bondage for five thousand years um whereas you have these these sort of mountainous terrains where which encourage self-sufficiency hardiness um and all sorts of uh, let's say masculine virtues independence of mind um but yes i i think that i think the war band thing is as much about is as much about uh the power of the state whether the power where the power of the state is going to is going to remain and where it's going to um retreat in the future and i do i i do, i do agree with that i do think that the as the american as america's hegemony over the world begins to recede i think that there will open up quite a lot of quite a lot of um uh what you might call liminal spaces or lawless spaces that will be uh ripe with opportunity i think for the right kinds of people well i'm 
slightly worried that this will get us far off topic of literature and, and man's world as a publication, because I don't think you're totally off base with what you're saying, but um, we're not quite there yet. Uh, so I wonder if perhaps um, the war band is something that's going to, to manifest anytime soon. Mm. Um, you know, it, one of the things that makes me think about is uh, when you say liminal space, there's a, there's a passage in Bronze Age Mindsets that uh, is available on Amazon uh, for any interested party where he talks about how the reason he doesn't like the suburbs. Actually, this is one of the few passages I have a slight disagreement with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he says that uh, he doesn't like the suburbs because it doesn't offer these what you refer to as liminal spaces for boys to go off out from under the eye of uh, their moms, their dads, their teachers, their principals. Whereas, of course, the country country has uh, loads of that. Yes. And uh, a city as well. You could sort of go a couple neighborhoods away or maybe to another borough and uh, find yourself with a certain type of freedom where no one knows you in that area, especially if it's a more residential urban area or a more industrial urban area as opposed to, say, a commercial one where people are going to take less notice of you and you can get into all sorts of trouble. Uh, mm-hmm. The movie 1900, the movie 1900, uh, excuse me, uh, Once Upon a Time in America, uh, both with De Niro, uh, shows this quite well. The, the young Italian immigrants who eventually grew up to be mafioso, uh, they kind of have the run of the streets um, even even better than this depicts this even better than mean streets. I I on the one hand, I do take a little bit of issue with that. I was raised in the suburbs and there was ample opportunity to to find and exist in liminal space outside the the uh, peering panopticon like mm-hmm. eye of the school and the police and the and the and the the parents and things like that. However, I do think overall there is a trend for this type of thing going away. If you go to New York City yes. now, this brings up another facet of your article, by the way, that I wanted to get at. Uh, mm. If you go to New York City now, especially Brooklyn, it's basically a playground for uh, uh, the rich, the super rich, or at least the upper tier of the middle class. Almost all of them who are transplants to the city from the Midwest or from Boston or from you know, the suburbs of various different parts of America. And the, the borough itself has gotten a complete overhaul. Um, and it's almost like Disneyland for for grown-ups, especially if you go to places like Cobble Hill and Park Park Slope, which were, were Park Slope in particular was like gang territory in the 80s. Mm. Um, now I I do consider this an improvement, but but my point is is that um, th- this er- overhaul uh, of urban centers, uh, certain parts of urban centers anyway, is sort of um, making that go away. It's it's sort of taking away the freedom that the people who grew up there might have been able to find mm. uh, before their neighborhoods became heavily commercialized. Conversely, uh, there is a, a, a latifundia um, phenomenon taking place, at least in America, in which uh, the most famous example being Bill Gates. These yeah. guys are buying up uh, large, massive, massive tracts of property uh, mm. in the interest of turning them into uh, logging uh, you know, uh, a stock of timber for them to log. Uh, now, in case people think we're getting a little too far afield here, everything is interconnected because, of course, one of the things these folks are doing, I don't know if Bill Gates himself is uh, guilty of this, but one of the things these folks are doing, some of them elected officials who are using taxpayer money and doing mm-hmm. using uh, using tax breaks, 
is making massive soy plantations yep. uh, in which they in which they make little uh, what they're what are being marketed as healthy treats for you to consume and, and gain weight while you're sitting in the office doing your office work or working from home now. Anyhow, you uh, you you bring this up in your article where you talk about how you, you can't really get an authentic experience in a in a in a um, in a uh, bucolic British village anymore because it's 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 sort of turned into this uh, artificial tourist attraction like like these old neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, no, that's precisely the case. Uh, it's um, you have this kind of. Um, I mean, there's been a there's been a big property boom, certainly where I live and in other parts of the country. And and because of the coronavirus, it's it's the the pandemic has uh, intensified uh, a sort of movement out of the city that was already that was already starting to take place. I think as as living standards were declining in London, especially. Um, but but due to the pandemic uh, and not wanting to be trapped in London, then you know tens and Tens of thousands of, of of wealthy people have bought up property in villages that are within commutable distance of London, either by train or car. So that's, I mean, that's most of the south of England, apart from probably somewhere like Cornwall, if you know your geography of England. Um, and and so what 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 happens, or what has happened and has been happening over maybe the last twenty years, is that the character of 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 a lot of of very lovely villages has has been changed has been changed totally so that that actually all of the nice houses are owned by people from london who maybe come down at the weekend every now and then and then otherwise the houses sit completely empty um local children the children of local people can't afford to buy houses in the village so they're pushed out to nearby towns or they're sort of stuck renting. Um, it's it's uh, yeah the the life of villages has has changed totally. I mean they don't villages haven't. I wouldn't say that villages in in Britain have had an independent economic life for a long time. They certainly haven't had a they haven't had an independent uh, economic life since mechanisation really, which which um, really really happened during the Second World War. Uh, but but they did have they did still have something of a life. They still had pubs and uh, maybe like a library and a few shops and things like that. But all of that is all of that is going now, and and they are just sort of becoming they are just sort of becoming yes as as, as you say of of uh, these places in York they're becoming like theme parks for rich people essentially who can kind of come down and pretend that they're they're slumming it in the countryside for the weekend and then go back to the metropole during the week it's um yeah it's uh it's and it's obviously not a it's obviously not a phenomenon that is just limited to britain and britain's villages no as a these things happen internally within cities as well um uh it's just a kind of um it saps all of the vitality out. Although, although it maybe yes, it, it makes uh, it makes a dangerous area safer for people to walk in and live in, and there are nice shops and you know hipster hipster bars and restaurants and stuff. Then these places are just totally soul sucked. They have no um, no real identity 
speak of. Yes, it's uh, part of the monoculturing of the world. Mm. Um, but but uh, in order to uh, loop in the Bronze Age pervert, uh, his article from issue two was, again, as you said, the, it's the open C of the step. The title of that article? Uh, open Step of the Sea. <laughs> yes, sorry. Uh, in that article, he talks about riding the train with a Mongol, a Mongolian man, and he he says how the Mongolian man is sort of uh, kind of a, a, a bit down on life in civilization and life in the West, or maybe they were in Russia, urban life in general. Even the food, uh, this this gentleman he had been speaking to was was used to uh, things like uh, 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 being raised on a diet of meat and, and milk, basically only. Um, and our food to him tasted like cardboard. And I think Bap tried to use this as a way to show you uh, what you are being denied and how uh, there are still pockets of people who live in a, in a free way that is sort of unprecedented. And previously, maybe you would say they were inaccessible to, to gentlemen like us. Uh, and I think perhaps, correct me if I'm wrong, part of the project for writing an article like the one you're writing and, and for Bronze Age Pervert to be doing everything that he's doing is an attempt to, to show young men how to re-access this, uh, this freedom. Now, I like to, uh, this wasn't my idea. I, I got this from, from someone, and uh, I believe this, this insight has been scrubbed from the internet. Uh, whoever, whoever had this blog, I guess, deleted it. But it was a young lady who was uh, reviewing Bronze Age Mindset and, and, and likened it to Jack Kerouac and said that uh, BAP was having an effect on young men in such in a similar way to Jack Kerouac. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, 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 the, the influence that the Beats had over the second half of the 20th century, especially in America, but even in, in Europe, cannot be overstated uh, at all. Uh, down into the, the, the late 90s, there were reverberations of uh, what they did. I mean, the entirety of hippie culture was spawned uh, and inspired by Jack Kerouac. Uh, Bob Dylan, one of the biggest figures in hippie culture, is directly inspired by Jack Kerouac. And he and he and his friends, but he's the main one, um, offered an alternative to the stifle. And here the interview recording drops off. I had a tremendous amount of difficulty transcribing this file into an MP3. And this was the most of the interview I was able to salvage. It goes on for about another 20 minutes. And I'm not exactly sure what happened. Hopefully this problem will be avoided in the future. Uh, and I'm sorry for the abrupt ending, and I'm sorry to uh, deprive you all of uh, further insights from Raw Egg Nationalist. Basically, I was making the point that uh, Bronze Age Pervert in his book Bronze Age Mindset was inspiring a youth movement similar to that of the Beats. And um, I mentioned Bob Dylan because the Beats literary movement inspired you know people in real life to access the freedom available to them that has always been right outside their door, right down the road, uh, all the way across the country, all the time. And they just, their mindset and their perspective was changed by books like The Dharma Bums and On the Road. And they immediately, uh, there was this big explosion of, of energy of people taking advantage of the, what uh, Ren referred to earlier as the liminal spaces available to them. And, uh, they just needed someone to sort of 
open their eyes or, or redirect their focus to those spaces so that they could enter them and access them and access a, a certain form of freedom, uh, this Nietzschean subterranean freedom that uh, he talks about in Twilight of the Idols, which I referenced earlier, and there will be a whole episode on that soon. But the point is, is that uh, the, the reference to Bob Dylan is that uh, once this sort of uh, new avenue for freedom and liberation is opened up, to people who were maybe be, maybe trapped or or stultified or petrified in the avenues given to them by the state or by the regime or just by cultural norms, uh, it also co- brings with it this burst of creativity. Um, and you can think what you want about the beat movement and the hippie movement and all those all that music. Uh, it's irrelevant uh, whether you agree or disagree with it. For our purposes here, we're just saying that it's a new way for creativity and freedom to be accessed and expressed to a whole generation of people. And I think Ren's essay from Man's World, issue 5, is one of the best uh, expressions and elucidations of these ideas of how different uh, segments or different the way society is stratified, you have different people on each different level, and how there's uh, the liminal spaces exist in between those two levels of stratifications, and how you can sort of uh, deterritorialize yourself from the the the, the solidified, um, ossified uh, ways of being on your level of strata, and you can kind of matriculate into those uh, substrata and access a new line of flight, a new uh, form of freedom there. And I think that's what Raw Egg was trying to do with his article about the merchants versus the village dweller versus the war band member versus the uh, uh, the shepherd. Uh, so we need to sort of uh, access those archetypes within ourselves and kind of figure out what our true nature is and then use that uh, as a way to sort of see our way out of the the prison, the iron prison, as Bap says, and as I spoke about in another episode, uh, to find our way out and to find our way into the liminal spaces. So, Raw Egg has agreed to come back. Man's World Issue 6 will be out in the next couple weeks, which is why I'm releasing this interview with him now. Uh, He's agreed to come back, and we're going to discuss these ideas and many more further in the next interview with him uh, once that issue is out. And he has a few other essays that he's written sort of uh, in the same vein as this. And I will link to those on my Twitter, which is at Astrikos10, at A-S-T-R-I-K-O-S-1-0, and my Substack, which is the Astro Flight Simulation uh, on Substack. Thank you very much for listening. And while I regret losing about 20 minutes worth of content, um, uh, it's... It's okay. It's not a big loss because Raw Egg will be back with us shortly. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode. I strongly encourage you to go read his episode, uh, his article, The Village and the Warband. And one last thing I'll leave you with is that the beats on this show uh, are always provided by my good friend, Zante, who goes by at Edenic Jesus on Twitter, at E-D-E-N-I-C-J. E-S-U-S. This is the Astro Flight Simulation podcast signing off. Join us next time as we navigate the digital world through art and culture. Oh.
Dungeon.